Sophie. So began the 22nd of May 1869, which was Wagner's 56th birthday. Richter blew Siegfried's horn call, quote, early in the morning, according to Cosima's famous or infamous diary. It runs through a million words if you can stay the course, and it's quite interesting to look at in terms of how Wagner celebrated his birthday, and I'm sure that Hans Richter didn't play it as well as that. So I'm delighted. Thank you, Sophie, very much. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How kind of you to come. I am faced with an impossible task this afternoon, which is to talk about Wagner in 30 minutes. <laughs> now, 30 minutes wouldn't even get you through the prelude to Goethe Dameron. It wouldn't even get you into Act 1, Scene 1. So what one can say usefully in 30 minutes, I'm not entirely sure, but I will do my best. One good thing, though, I know that the con house is a damnably uncomfortable place to sit. Well, so is Bayreuth, but you've only got to sit here for half an hour rather than most of the day. It's all said that Wagner was long-winded. I'll take issue with that sentiment in this talk, because to me, time is in a sense suspended when you start listening. I've no idea where I am in the, the, the daily clock once the music starts. The performances which sound as if they're quick at the end turn out not to be. The internal tempi, the melos, the playing is really what matters. And it's very difficult, I think, to have a, a grip of real time when reality is so suspended as it is in the opera house. So you're only going to be here for half an hour and then we'll have some more music, so that's something to look forward to. And I think it's unfair, really, um, on Wagner to protest about his length. Lots of other composers were equally long-winded. I find that he packed an enormous punch into the time that he allots. And he can change the atmosphere, the feeling, the emotion in an instant. He's adept at packing his operas, his music dramas, with abrupt changes of mood and of tone and of, and of meaning. And I, I think in that sense, it's, it's not repetitive. All right, you might hear the same material, but it's sung by a different character. It's the same action from a different point of view. It's a thorough psychological and analytical treatment of some very basic themes. So when Rossini, it's said to be Rossini, said that Wagner has some wonderful moments but some bad quarters of an hour, 
Perhaps he wasn't quite listening as carefully as he might have been. So what can I do in 30 minutes? I think I'll adopt a three-point strategy. A tripartite strategy for a lecture is always a good thing because you know when I'm coming to the end. And the three things that I'm going to look at, given this it is the great man's 200th birthday today, is to look firstly at the circumstances of that birth and how it might have had an impact on certain activities later in his life. And secondly, I want to talk about Wagner the man. It has to be faced. It's not an entirely pleasant subject, but we must not duck it. And thirdly, and most importantly, I want to say a little bit about the music. Now, Wagner was born 200 years ago today in peculiar circumstances, I think, to say the least. And one strongly suspects that the peculiar nature of his birth had an impact on his later thought about his birthdays and why they achieved, according to Cosima in her diaries, a really quite cosmic significance. Here are a few extracts from Cosima's diary, which wasn't published for about a century after she wrote most of it. The birthdays of Wagner were great rituals. They were, as I say, obsessively, um, complicatedly celebrated. Telegrams from all and sundry, including, of course, Mad King Ludwig. There were lots of preparations. The Siegfried horn call might have started early in the morning, but Cosima was often up, his wife, second wife, was often up half the night making the preparations. And everyone, according to her diary, seems to spend most of the birthdays in floods of tears. So, 1869, Richter blew Siegfried's horn call early in the morning. 1871, Cosima up at four o'clock in the morning to arrange everything, dressed as Sieglinde from the Valkyrie. Apparently, Wagner loved it when she dressed up as Sieglinde. It did something for him. In 1872, it poured with rain. This is Bayreuth. It often pours with rain. It's a very rainy climate. They laid the foundation stone of the Feshbiel House in 1872 on the 22nd of May in the mud. In 1874, 61 candles were stuck in Wagner's bathtub by the children. Everyone was crying. 1875, 62 illuminated ballrooms in the hall. 1876, Cosima gives Richard a polar bear. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about that. 1878, quote, many, many tears. 1880, not only tears, but also sobs. Richard says that he was born in 1813 and he's decided he's not in favour of the number 13. Well, it's a bit late to decide that, isn't it, in 1880. In 1881, there were fantasies all day. I wonder what the fantasies consisted of. I wonder. We shall probably never know. But Wagner was a great family man in that sense, perhaps not in others. When he was born on the 22nd of May, 1813. He was the ninth child, supposedly, of a police um, official, Karl Friedrich Wagner, and his wife, Joanna. Ah, but was he? Wagner was always in doubt about his parentage. The friend of the family, also involved in their acting, and their acting troupe, was a man called Ludwig Geyer, who, according to some authorities, probably was Wagner's father. At any rate, Karl Friedrich Wagner died later in 1813. He was no paragon either. He was always being detained late at the office. He had the attentions of a particular actress in the troupe. He was always late home, funny that. And Joanna actually married Ludwig Geyer the next year. 
and she undertook a perilous journey a couple of months after Wagner was born in the summer of 1813 across war-torn Saxony and Bohemia to visit him. And all this suggests very strongly that there was a, a romantic link. And certainly, as I say, she, she married him very shortly afterwards. 1813, and a, a dramatic year, particularly in Leipzig, where the Battle of Leipzig in October of that year, when Wagner was only six months old, was probably the biggest and bloodiest battle in continental Europe before the First World War, when the alliance of powers, um, Austria, Prussia, Russia, Sweden, um, defeated Napoleon so comprehensively at the Battle of Leipzig. So it was a tumultuous family background. And it's very tempting to see the tumultuous nature of that in, in Wagner's later attitude to his own birth and his parentage and indeed possibly in his own behaviour. He married a long-suffering actress, pretty woman called Minna. They never actually divorced, but to say they're unsuited is putting it really rather mildly. And Wagner, later in life, of course, enjoyed women as much, warmed as much as he enjoyed music. He married Cosima Wagner, the daughter of, of Franz Liszt, at last in 1870. Um, she was... Um, half Hungarian and really half French. Her mother was um, Liszt's mistress in Paris. So she was illegitimate. And there was Jewish blood in the family as well, which might explain some of Cosima's ideas and her so-called frigid respectability and her so-called lack of sense of humour and her sort of domestic obsessions. It's said that she wrapped Wagner very firmly over the knuckles when he strayed. And she was even concerned about his table manners. Can it really be that the master held his knife like a pencil? One quails at the thought. But she certainly had him under fairly strict control at the end of his life. After all, he'd had an affairs with Matilda Weisendonck when he was writing Tristan, with the, um, the fascinating Judith Gautier, again, French beauty at the time, and a succession of chambermaids and actresses and people he happened to meet. Um, but he always came back to Cosima. It's emerged also that he was probably the father of the three children which the housemaid had while she was working for them. She was a kind of general sort of house manager as well, and she looked after his every need. Clearly she did. <laughs> so it's a rather messy, rather sort of soap opery, certainly not kind of Victorian value sort of background. And Wagner's adult behaviour, as I say, was very much what you might have expected from from his, his, his origins. Cosima was 24 years younger, and she outlasted him by nearly half a century, dying in, in 1930. Um, so marrying somebody 24 years your junior, you'd have thought might have been enough, but perhaps not. She had two children by Hans von Bülow, the famous conductor to whom she was married, and then three illegitimate children by Wagner, the three... Um, the daughters, and, and um, of course, Siegfried, two daughters and Siegfried, three illegitimate children. And they finally got married in, in 1870. And her birthdays, of course, were celebrated too in a lovely way. In fact, the Siegfried Idyll was performed on Cosima's birthday, which was Christmas Day, Christmas Eve each year. And the Kindercatechismus, which we'll hear in due course, was also um, a birthday present from Wagner to to, to Cosima. Um, he noted, and Cosima wrote it down in, in the diary, 21st 
25th of December, 1874, the rehearsal for the Kinder Catechismus, which we shall hear. Richard tells me how well the children behaved at the rehearsal, modest and without giving themselves airs. So bear that in mind. So where are we? Wagner, the, the man, then. Well, he was very good at helping himself to other men's money and other men's wives. And of Hans von Bülow, it was said from St. John's Gospel, greater love hath no man than that a man lay down his wife for his friend, which is in effect what happened. Many of Wagner's traits, his boastfulness, his arrogance, his, his chronic inability to keep hold of money, of course, have counted against him. And it leads us to the great question, which I know I've discussed with at least one or two people in the audience, is are great artists, capital G, capital A, are great artists allowed to be unpleasant people? Are they allowed to be bad men? Does it give them an excuse for, for bad behaviour? Well, it's hard to say, particularly when you're dealing with Richard Wagner, whose anti-Semitism has been much talked about, and his so-called links with the Nazi party, although I find that a bit hard, because after all, he died exactly 50 years before Hitler came to power. So I don't think he can really be blamed directly for, for the Holocaust. If you want to read a very, very good analysis of Wagner's anti-Semitism, you can't do better than read the appendix to Brian McGee's book, um, Wagner and Philosophy, which is a, a magnificent and very sensitive attempt to understand Wagner's anti-Semitism and to understand that it's not to condone it. But he shows, I think, convincingly, it was a very different kind of anti-Semitism, a cultural anti-Semitism from the one which was moulded by Hitler. Completely different order and a completely different type. And the links with, with anti-Semitism and with the Nazis came mainly into the Wagner family, it seems to me, either through Cosima or through the, the British members of the household, Houston Stuart Chamberlain was one, and of course Winifred Wagner, who married Wagner's son Siegfried. These were the rabid anti-Semites and the, the sympathisers of, of Hitler. And Hitler, of course, did like the music, although it's always said that actually he preferred the Merry Widow, but wouldn't admit it. The Nazi officials were bored rigid by Wagner. They hated going to Bayreuth. They had to be driven in more locked in to hear master singers. And indeed, the performances of Wagner diminished in number all the way through the Third Reich. And the Nazi officials, and particularly um, um, Goebbels, uh, declared that Parsifal was not a work to be encouraged, and indeed they never ever played it. So, paradoxically, the Nazi years were not good for, for, for Wagner performance. And I wondered if, if Hitler would actually like Shakespeare because of the Merchant of, of Venice, and have been worshipped as, a, as an anti-Semite. Um, Shakespeare would have gone down in everybody's estimation. It's a very tricky one, it has to be faced up to. One certainly can't deal with it within 30 minutes, but I want it, it noted. Wagner, of course, um, was a, a left-wing agitator and um, almost um, hounded out of the country as a, as a consequence. And he certainly railed against Oxford in terms of what it has become, in terms of it being an expensive closed shop. He wanted everybody to come and listen to his performances and not to charge them a lot of money. I mean, he made Bayreuth in an impossible place to get to, simply because he didn't want it to turn into what Salzburg has become. And if people really wanted to hear the music, they had to make a pilgrimage to do so. And when he talked about the ring being a preliminary evening and three days, I think that's what he meant, that we should take our time to take these works in, not to rush from the office for a, a six o'clock curtain up on a piece which is going to last till midnight, 
and at Bayreuth, that is what you do. The performance starts at four o'clock. Each interval is an hour long. You have time to walk about the gardens and reflect. So it really is a preliminary evening in three days, four days if you wish. But ladies and gentlemen, that's still shorter than a test match. <laughs> so if Wagner had been a, a nicer man, would he have achieved all this? He wrote all these operas, 10 mature operas, he wrote the libretti, he wrote the music, more like built the sets, built the theatre, got the money together, set up the festival. I fancy that if he'd been a nicer, more compliant sort of person, perhaps none of that would ever have happened. I mean, he took enormous risks, both with other people and indeed with himself. He stopped writing The Ring after the second act of Siegfried and laid down his pen for 10 years before going back to the, the, the composition of The Ring because he thought he needed more experience, he needed to write other things. He had Tristan bursting out of him. But he had the nerve to wait 10 years before finishing The Ring in such dramatic style. Yes, he, um, he decided he'd, he'd write a, a simple opera that um, could be performed by any provincial opera house. It was easy to sing, no difficulty about it, staging simple. Um, it would make a bit of money and then he might be able to get back to the Ring of the Nibelung. So what did he compose? Tristan and Isolde. <sighs> Which has seen the end of several people, including, I always get nervous conducting bits of Tristan. Two conductors died at more or less the same moment in Act Three. <laughs> Merkel and Kyle Burt. It was just too much. Although with Felix Merkel, if you read the, the description of this, when he collapsed in the third act of Tristan, he had actually been shopping for the day during the afternoon before the performance. And he was a man. And I think going shopping, probably, was what did for him, rather than conducting Tristan. I know what I would rather do. Anyway, you might think that's un unduly flippant. So, if he wasn't Haydn, who was loved by all, if he was a difficult personality, if he was outrageous and egotistical and going off with money on women all the time, why do we spend all this money and all this effort to get ourselves to Bayreuth or to London, to sit there for hours on end, listening to the performances of his music dramas. Well, the answer in one level, ladies and gentlemen, I think is simple. It's because of the music, that's why. It's because of the music, which affects people, those who are affected by it, in an inexplicable, deep, and really unparalleled way with any composer. Some people aren't affected by this at all, um, and some people actively hate it. Nietzsche turned against it in the end because he felt he was being manipulated. But I'm always pleased, ladies and gentlemen, to meet people who don't like Wagner because the tickets are hard enough to get hold of as it is. <laughs> and it's always nice to meet some more who aren't after them. And I think he's unique in his hold on, on the senses to those who are receptive to his music. Others, as I say, are, are unmoved. It's an intuitive, perhaps even repressed, set of emotions which some of us don't know we had or cannot articulate or are angry when they are shown to us. And that's why people faint in the opera house and get carried out and have a lifelong obsession. Because it affects you in a, in a deep and, and in a way which is very often not possible to articulate because it goes beyond words. And that is the purpose of Wagnerian music drama. It says in music what you cannot express in words. And in fact, one could go to, as far as to say that although he wrote the words himself and the words are very important, it's in the music that the true meaning of the, of the music drama lies. And unless you can get inside the music, you won't appreciate it. This is why 
I've found that conducting Wagner and certainly playing it, playing in, in an orchestra, doing a Wagner performance, you hear things which you never hear even on the best recordings. You hear the way that the music shifts bar to bar. It tells you a story. The action is in the orchestra pit. And I found this being lucky enough to having played in orchestral performances, amateur ones, of several um, Wagner operas. We were all in a complete state by the end of Tristan, as you can imagine. And at the end of Goethe Damring, I really could not stand up. Cello is not an easy instrument to, to play at, at the best of time for long periods, and we really weren't able to stand. So I'd like to give just three very brief examples of the way in which Wagner's music can affect people. And I expect you know what I'm going to play. We're going to start with the ring, the beginning of the Rheingold. And if you know the key of E-flat, you know the first 136 bars of Rheingold. And it, it affects some people in a way which they can't possibly explain. It's said that life came out of the water sometime during the Paleozoic. And there's a kind of resonance when you're in Bayreuth and all the curtains are closed and it's pitch dark. And then from the depths of the orchestra, and you don't see the orchestra because they're under, under the stage, you hear in the double basses a chord, in fact, just a note, a single note, an octave of E-flat. And four bars later, it's joined by the bassoons on the dominant, the B-flat. And that goes on for another 12 bars. And at the moment, you've only heard two notes. And then the eighth horn gives out an arpeggio in E-flat. And the seventh horn, and so forth. And in bar 49, the cellos come in with the nature motive. It begins to weave. It begins to move. And so on. Bar 81, the speed doubles. Now, bar 49, when the cellos come in, heaven help the conductor who brings them in a bar early or too late. It will ruin the performance. So, already, one's nerves are on edge. One is in a, a different time world. That first 136 bars all sounds to take longer than it really does. And those who are affected feel a kind of internal resonance which they can't possibly explain to themselves or indeed to anybody else. Let's take another example, a bit later, in the same opera, I'll show you, or try to show you how Wagner changes the mood in an instant with a motive. We hear a, a, a motive of, of Valhalla, of the gods, in Wagner's, one of Wagner's favorite keys of D flat. And changes in an instant when Brunhilde steps forward to end the, 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 the realm of the gods with rest thou, O God. And we, we know we hear the same motive, but it does this. Goes to G flat minor, and a whole range of motives instantly come in the downfall of the gods and the end, of the end of the world. Wagner said that the ring is the beginning of the world, which we heard a few moments ago, and it's the end of the world, is that. And as I say, some people are affected by this and others are not. 
but few people are unaffected by my third example, which changed the course of 19th century music, and music has never been the same since, and I think you know what I'm going to play. Not only has the Tristan chord been the subject of a lot of debate, but the main point is that it's not resolved for four hours <laughs> until you get to the Liebestod. It's left hanging, this unrequited love, and it's all in the music. Very little happens on the stage. You could go out and have a couple of drinks and nothing would really happen on the stage. They'd be exactly the same position when you came back. But an awful lot has happened in the orchestra, and I suppose in the singing. And when the Tristan chord finally does orgasmically resolve at the end of Tristan, you've reached the end of a very long journey, and you've been on tenterhooks for the last four hours. And that is no doubt why two conductors didn't make it. Where does it leave us for a conclusion? Because I've only got a couple of minutes. What did Wagner achieve? Well, he 12 material operas, 12 material music dramas, built by Royce, changed the face of music forever, said that more books have been written about Wagner than about Jesus Christ or Napoleon, but I'm sure that's not true. Um, some commentators continued, I think, to be very well worth reading on quite why Wagner gets it, you, Thomas Mann particularly, who is by no means uncritical. And it's said that Wagner's music is better than it can be played. It is a permanent quest. I think Wagner picked myth for a reason, which is why you're dealing with basic instincts, basic urges, love, power, gain, wealth, the rape of nature, and that's what keeps it current. That's why people keep coming back to these operas time and time again. Although I think one ought to respect the myth. The whole purpose of the myth is that you, can, you have characters who are every man who are enduring. I don't think Wagner needs to be placed in dinner jackets under the Hammersmith flyover to make the point, which is why you have so many daft and dopey productions by designers and producers with a concept. I think it's all, all in the music, despite really what um, Wagner said to the contrary. And bleeding chunks are not the way to listen to it. I think you have to listen to the whole thing and listen if possibly if possible, with an understanding of how the music is actually supposed to work. I mean, take, for example, the Ride of the Valkyries, which everybody knows. Or do they? It's nearly always played wrong. Eight conductors out of ten get it wrong. It's interesting. It's in a nine-eight. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a triple structure. So it's, um, if, if you sing it to the nonsense words, I'm sick on the seesaw, the emphasis should be on the sick. So it's, I'm sick on the seesaw, sick on the seesaw, sick on the seesaw, sick on the swings. And that semiquaver needs to be really brief. What you often find is that the pulse, the emphasis slips to the second beat, and I've known quite famous conductors lose it and not get it back, and you don't get that semiquaver. You get a kind of lazy triplet. So what you hear is, da 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 Da, 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 da. Wagner annotates it in the score perfectly clearly, so why can't people read instructions? 
That is just a simple example. There is still work, therefore, even I find for, for amateurs to do, playing and um, conducting Wagner. So here we have a lot of loose ends. Wagner left a lot of loose ends. His musical and dramatic instincts, I think, were always paramount. For example, the great question of the ring is that the, the Rhine gold was returned to the Rhine maidens. That was where we were waiting 15 hours to see this. And when it is returned, the gods still perish. They're not redeemed and rescued at all. And Wagner was asked, of course, countless times why this was the case, and he didn't make a very good job of explaining it. But when you hear the music, his musical dramatic instincts were right. It, it seems perfectly illogical, but correct and right. So, Wagner got away with a great deal in Take the Valkyrie. There's at least one, probably two cases of incest going on, full pelt in the Valkyrie. But people take him, even nowadays, incest is regarded as a bit dodgy around, around the world, and certainly in civilised society. And yet, there is no problem, nobody contests the, the love of Sigmund and Sieglinde, because it is so utterly genuine. And Wagner doesn't give us um, the consummation of it, he takes that as one of the most natural things in the world. So, even in a, 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 a peculiar moral situation like that, I wonder what he would have made of, um, to take a, a modern theme, about um, same-sex same marriage. I think he was so obsessed with women, it didn't occur to him that homosexuality was real, probably, or anybody, anybody would, would even think that. Um, and after all, they tell me that um, every marriage is, is um, a same-sex marriage, because when you've married for a bit, the sex is all the same. Wagner always said, do something different. Do something different, and we will right now. But I would be prepared to bet a lot of money, although none of us will be here to see it, that his operas are still being discussed and argued about on his 300th birthday in a hundred years' time. But you've heard enough of me waffling on at this point. Let us have some, some more music. Let us see if the children are going to be well-rehearsed modest and won't give themselves airs. And Wagner could write long pieces, he could also write short pieces. I put it all in the programme to save you listening to me any further. But this is two and a half minutes, and it ends with the end of Goethe Dammering, which you'll get to in two minutes rather than 15 hours. <laughs> so that is no doubt a good thing, and I'm delighted to welcome the Wagner Kinder to come and give us...
Ladies and gentlemen, you will, of course, have noticed that one of the themes of the Kindercatechismus is taken from Siegfried's Horncore. So it does all mesh in the end. And I'm very grateful to say for Sophie for beginning this and to the Wagner Kinder for finishing it. Um, Sophie is also available if anybody wants to talk to her and me about the Wagner tuba, which is an instrument which Wagner invented. He um, didn't like the orchestra of his day, and I might just say very briefly that there's been a lot of talk at the moment about period performance and of period instruments. Well, Wagner didn't like the instruments of his day, which is why he went around inventing new ones. He wanted a kind of tuba which is really a horn with a portentous tone for the ring, and he invented, largely invented the Wagner tube, and I'm very pleased to say that half of Brooklyn Orchestra, we've just acquired a set, which is why I want to show one off. And Sophie's a, a wonderful player of the Wagner tube, and if you want to go and actually look at one, um, you don't come close to them very often. They're not used much outside Wagner, apart from the last three Bruckner symphonies and the Rite of Spring and certain other pieces. But yes, um, I think that a lot of the period instrument revival has actually created an orchestra to play Wagner, which is the one that he actively didn't want. So there's a thought for the day. Thank you very much. <laughs>